This is a WTOP original podcast. From Podcast One. Previously on Colors. Tony McAleer grew up affluent and privileged in Canada and the UK, but something was missing in his life, so he turned to white supremacy. I was not a tough kid growing up, uh, and when when I came across you know skinheads and met them, and I was terrified of them, but I was also drawn to them because they had the one thing I didn't, and that was toughness. And what I got from joining uh, with those guys is people feared me for the first time, not because of me, but because of who I who I was. And I got power when I felt powerless. He spent many years promoting white supremacy until something happened. The birth of my, my daughter and my son 15 months later, and by the time they were four and six, I was a full-time single father. He started thinking about the world he was creating for them, and he had had enough. He wrote The Cure for Hate, a former white supremacist journey from violent extremist to radical compassion. We talked to him about it all and what he's doing to make amends. Coming up in this episode of Colors... It's Native American Heritage Month. Shonda Buchanan is a renowned author, poet, artist, and educator. And she's written a new book called Black Indian, a memoir. And in this book, she challenges us to think deeper about who we are, not just as blacks or Indians, but any race. And in the process, she's gotten some pushback. I get from some black folks that, why do you have to claim Indian? Do you, is, are you trying to be better than us? At the same time, I've gotten from American Indians, you know, why do you claim you're black? Why can't you just stay Indian? Why can't you just, you know, maintain this side of the culture? And so why, and I'm like, why do you, oh, go ahead. why do you think they do that? It makes them feel safe. safe. It makes them, mm-hmm, it makes people feel safe to be able to categorize you and keep you on their side. It's a fascinating discussion about racial identity, backlash, the census, American culture, and much, much more. That's coming up in this episode of Colors. Simmering racial tensions. Segregation now and tomorrow and forever. Fighting injustice. I have a dream. Conflict looming. Brutality exposed. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. The search for solutions starts here. From WTOP in Washington, D.C. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America. Check the mic and make sure it sounds right, boys. Stanfield, um, a black man, born and raised in Washington, D.C. Julie Pham, Vietnamese, American, born in Vietnam, living in Seattle. My name is Vanessa Cárdenas, and I am a first-generation American. My family is originally from Bolivia. I'm J.J. Green. And I'm black, and this is Colors. It's Native American Heritage Month. During this month, we pay tribute to the rich ancestry and traditions of Native Americans. Shonda Buchanan is a renowned author, poet, artist, and educator. And she's written a new book called Black Indian, a memoir. And in this book, 
She explores her family's legacy of being African-Americans with American Indian roots and how they dealt with not just society's ostracization, but the consequences of dual inheritance. She challenges us to think deeper about who we are, not just as blacks or Indians, but any race. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for your kind words. I really appreciate that. <laughs> I want to talk to you about a few things today. First and foremost, though, I want to talk to you about Black Indian, a memoir by Shonda Buchanan. And Amazon writes, Black Indian, Searing and Raw is Amy Tan's The Joy Luck Club and Alice Walker's The Color Purple meets Leslie Marmon's Silco Cer- Ceremony. Only this isn't fiction. <laughs> that is a heck of a way to set this up. And I thought that I would let you tell us what Black Indian is and what it's about. You know, it's interesting. Uh, PBS NewsHour nominated this book, one of top 20 books to read to learn about institutional racism. And when I saw that, I, I was incredibly elated to be in the category of Octavia Butler and uh, I think ta Coates and some other folks. But then I went back and I thought, how is, how is this about institutional racism? And the reason I, I doubted, that, doubted that for myself was because it's a family memoir. But it, even in the telling of this family story, and I knew I was doing this part purposefully, I had to unravel the tapestry of race and ethnicity in America and particularly with regards to mixed bloods and people who have always said, uh, I'm African-American, but I've got some Indian in me. And that's a narrative that I grew up with in my family. It's like, you, you know, you're a little bit of black, but you've got some Indian in you. And, uh, and so in the book, I, I write about family. I write about what it was like growing up in a, a caustic kind of volatile environment as a child but then I connected it to what it meant as a mixed blood, as an African-American, as an American Indian in this country to consistently over a period of time, beginning with enslavement, the Middle Passage, uh, beginning with the onslaught on American Indians in this country, erasure, removal, uh, depositing, depositing nations on, on reservations in Oklahoma and Alabama, so I connected my family's story back to that descent of how we were uh, essentially under siege uh, as as people of color in this country and w- the c- connecting it back to the institutional racism piece. Uh, there are swaths of history in my memoir where I talk about how uh, the first Virginia magistrate, Walter Plecker, um, it essentially went into uh, the, the Virginia archives, I guess it, vital, vital records, statistics and vital records. And, and he directed his employees, if anyone is trying to claim a mixed race, but they're black, they are only black. They cannot claim they're Indian. They cannot claim white. Uh, and that set up this, what we call a uh, paper erasure where if you knew that your mother's nation, you know, your mother's tribe was, uh, say in, in Virginia, we can say Nottaway or um, Tuscarora or uh, Monacan or you, just any of those nations over there. And then your, but your dad was white. 
or your dad was black and, you know, he came from the African-American, you know, tradition or family, you know, race and ethnicity, family tradition, but you couldn't on paper on your birth certificate, uh, uh, be listed as that. So, so yes, I do talk about, uh, institutional racism and kind of the evolution of, uh, of what that meant and the impact on, on those two specific ethnicities, African-American and American Indian. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. <laughs> so let me ask you this question. Why did you write mm-hmm. this? One, I needed to make sense of my childhood. Uh, I wanted to make sense of, uh, the, the kind of the ghosts that would visit us in our dreams and, um, and, and then also a not knowing or a non knowing. So when I say that, I mean, uh, secrets, you know, in my family or lost history, uh, not knowing who my great, great grandmother was not knowing, uh, who, where we came from. Uh, in fact, I write in the book that I thought we were, because my mom always said, you've got some Indian in you. And I thought, oh, okay, then our Indian is from Michigan because I was born in Michigan. So, you know, when I started researching the nations there, uh, the Potawatomi, the Anishinaabe, uh, the Odawa or Otawa, they call them, uh, they're there. There are some other nations, uh, American Indian nations as well. In fact, one of my great, great uncles was adopted by the Tawa tribe, uh, because he, um, wanted to, to, uh, maintain his American, his Indian ways or American Indian ways. However, when I tried to, you know, ask my mom more questions and my aunts and my, you know, my grandmother had died. My grandfather died when I was young before I started asking questions. So I couldn't ask any questions of them. And when I started asking questions of the people who were near me and around me, they were like, well, I don't know. I'm not sure. Well, I don't know. Why are you asking so many questions? And as a journalist, as an educator, uh, as a, uh, a poet, first and foremost, uh, I, I just, I had to language my experience. And, and, and then I married languaging that experience with the research and I finally tracked us down to, it, I, I just have to say a moment of validation and vindication was when I found one of my uh, great, great grandfathers listed on his world war uh, two, one or two record. And I have to go back and, and confirm, look, not just confirm which war, mm-hmm. but he listed Indian uh, just that that was it. No nation, no tribe, just that was his race Indian. And then over an evolution, over a period of every 10 years, he became a different ethnicity. <laughs> That's really... it was so fascinating. So fascinating. Right. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. you know, that is really interesting, Shonda, because I think it was one of the early episodes of Colors, which this podcast started a couple of weeks after George Floyd was murdered. And mm. it started because I had to do something because mm-hmm. as an African-American and as somebody who grew up in the South and somebody who's working in the <laughs> the nation's capital and in other places around the country and the world, seeing what racism has evolved to and into, um, I just saw, along with the, my partner at the time, who on the show, that is, who... Um, is a white guy and we'd known each other for 30 years 
and we said we have to do something. So we did this program, and one of the first people that we interviewed was the Army Sergeant Major. And that person is the person who is the most senior enlisted member of the Army. He works at the Pentagon. This individual's name is Michael Grinston. He is uh, half African-American and half Caucasian. And he said something on that show. You were talking about these boxes that people are forced to check when it comes to race. And he talked about how he tried to do that multiple boxes. You know, this is in the military. And they were like, no, you can't do that. You know, and he was prevented from doing that. And he also talked about how. And he's, these are his words. He says, sometimes you're not black enough for the black people and you're not white enough for the white people. Have you ever felt anything like that? Absolutely. <laughs> I have an entire chapter in my book. In fact, gosh, what is it? Chapter eight, where I start talking about how, uh, you know, people will look at me, you know, askew in this funny way when I say, yeah, I'm, I'm, I've got some Indian in me or I, or I know my nations. My nations are the Kahari, the Eastern Band, Cherokee, uh, Choctaw, my dad's side. It was oral history until I traced it down. And so I'm telling them, like, I'm telling them all these, like, and this is what da 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 da. They're like, but girl, you know, you black. And I'm like, um, yeah, I am. And I'm proud of the, my blackness. And I and I acknowledge my African ancestry. Yet I'm acknowledging this ancestry as well. Um, so, yeah, I do get the sense that for some folks uh, be claiming and, and, and this is, you know, something that's been written about and talked about that mulatto, the tragic mulatto complex. Right. Um, I get from some black folks that why do you have to claim Indian? Do you is are you trying to be better than us? At the same time, I've gotten from American Indians, you know, why do you claim you're black? Why can't you just stay Indian? Why can't you just, you know, maintain this? side of the culture and so why i'm like why do you why do you think they do that it makes them feel safe Safe. it makes them mm -hmm, it makes people feel safe to be able to categorize you and keep you on their side uh i think it makes people feel like uh if you are trying that's just this is just my personal belief (laughs) i believe that um, people want to place you and, and this is a this is an enculturation thing as well. Right. It's not just mm-hmm. black folks or American Indians. This isn't the ethos of America. When you place someone, then you can class them and then you can either set them aside or you can embrace them. <laughs> and so I do believe that that's a, a sense of um, do you belong to my tribe or do you belong on this side or do you belong over there? because it makes us feel safe to be able to categorize people. And I, and I, so I have a book out called uh, who's afraid of black Indians. It was my first uh, 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 entree into writing, compiling my writings about uh, the experiences in America. And I have a, a poem in there called what the census means to a mixed blood. And basically just in, it's a litany of, um, the sense of uh, uh, the recategorization, the classification, the erasure, uh, the um, uh, what do I, I say? Uh, several things to promulgate, to you know, to to see Jane run. So, so there are things that uh, once you have a sense of where a person is in terms of their race in terms of their ethnicity, in terms of their monetary class, in terms of, you know, where they grew up. It's something about 
uh, us, this American ethos that says, okay, now I feel better. Now I feel better because I know who you are. (laughs) So, So, you know, maybe we'll get into that census piece in a little bit if if we have the opportunity. But um, a couple things I wanted to get into that have to absolutely do with this feeling better piece. Um, You know, you are the recipient of just so many awards. I mean, this is like a full page of stuff. (laughs) And I would love to read it, but I'm going to let our readers read it. Um, themselves, and we we will just talk to you about all this. But you know, she's an award-winning poet, nonfiction writer, and education. She's the recipient of the Brody Arts Fellowship from the California Community Foundation, a Big Read grant from the National Endowment for the Arts, several Virginia Foundation for the Humanities grants, the Denise L. Scott and Frank Sullivan Awards. So, when you look at all that you accomplished, you have accomplished. You get up every day. And you still feel like you have to do, you still feel like you want to do something else. And, you know, I get that myself every day. I feel like, I'm, I'm, you know, I've done a bunch, but there's still more to do. But sometimes I get this, sometimes I get this feeling about, you know, people are tired of hearing from me. You know, people, some people have made it clear, not saying this has happened to you. Some people have made it clear to me they don't want to hear from me we've gotten folks yeah we've gotten folks who've (laughs) actually written to me telling me to not do colors anymore we're tired of hearing from you we don't want to hear about race so how i was talking about the feeling better piece how do we feel better about that and how do we address that because it's a constant thing for some of us people that just don't want us to do what we do I don't know who those people are. Who are these people? So I have never gotten that for, uh, I have, when I do my talks, when I do lectures, um, I have every race in the, in that auditorium. Uh, when I do international lectures, Malaysia, uh, Amsterdam, I have every race and Amsterdam, of course, predominantly European, uh, white people. So I have not gotten any, emails or any phone calls to say, why are you talking about race? No one has come up to me after my talks and said, why are you talking about race? I think the people in that room understand that the tapestry of America, the the real story, the real narrative is the mixed blood narrative and the mixed ethnicity narrative. And they, they're also researching their lineage and their legacies and they're trying to give their children an understanding of where they came from. Um, and, and then also when I say those people who, who will ostracize you for being mixed blood or, or, or try to make you claim one race and one ethnicity, I will say that those people also, um, maybe it's something that they, they, uh, have been thinking about themselves, but they, they haven't had a chance or the inclination to actually research it. Uh, so, yeah. or, um, or they, maybe they've, uh, they have had like a, uh, um, someone hiding, you know, the secrets in their family as well. And it, so, so I have to actually even back up and, and say this, talk about this part. Um, so when I talk about the secrets of my family, when I talk about what it means to, um, to list the, uh, um, what, what can I say? Well, um, it, it really is about 
um, when people of color or, 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 uh, so, so when people of color were, um, ostracized when they had to pay a tithe or a fine on themselves, or if a white person married a black person, if a black person married an Indian person, you had to pay a tax on your wife's head, uh, you, on your children's head. Like th- there were, there were, um, things that this country and different states set up to make it, uh, uh, hard for you or illegitimate or, or you became immoral because you were mixed blood. And so these are the kinds of things when I talk about the secrets that people have been, they're hiding and it's in our DNA as well. That sense of don't talk too much about what happened in the past or in the, in our family, because that could come back and, 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 and bite you, or that could come back and, uh, uh, um, you know, into, into the present and something could happen that, that fear is in our DNA that mm-hmm. something will happen if people know where we came from. And also I have to say with the sense of, uh, with, with lynching, you know, of African-American men and women in this country. And sometimes something would happen in, in the South or in the Midwest, or, you know, it could happen. Up, it could happen up North as well, but something happened. And then suddenly you had to secret your uncle or you had to secret a nephew or a cousin out because they had done something that could have been regular. Maybe they could have whistled at a white woman. Maybe they could have uh, a talk, quote unquote, talk back to a white man. And suddenly it's like, you better leave. You know, you got, you've got to go. And then they'd show up someplace else, but nobody wants to talk about that. Mm-hmm. Like those are the kinds of, of oral narratives and oral histories that on the African-American side we have. And that, that, that kind, that kind of secrecy, the kind of don't talk about the dirty laundry, don't talk about where such and such came from. It's, it's in our DNA. So, um, the, again, people who don't want to talk about race, there is some kind of a fear that they have themselves. You know what I mean? Like there's something that I don't want to say that they're hiding (laughs) because maybe they don't even know it, but they've just been raised with that sense. So I think there's a, a fear of, of people, of some people of color talking about it for white people who will email you and say, we're tired of hearing you talk about race. They don't want to relinquish their privilege. Uh, this is what I feel yeah. that, uh, and this is my opinion that some folks want us not to talk about race because race deals with equity. Race deals with inclusivity. Mm-hmm. Race deals with giving a person of color a fair shake. And and they don't even have to listen to any of this. They can turn off their TV. They can ignore Black Lives Matter. They they don't have to listen to it because they, they have their money. They have their place, their status in society. They've inherited whatever the money is that they've inherited. And so they they don't have to pay attention. But human decency, compassion, uh, uh, hum- your, your, your card to humanity, <laughs> to being a human being on this earth where other people are suffering, have traditionally suffered, sh- should give you some kind of a, a mor- moral code that I need to help or I need to do something. I need to listen to JJ's podcast hmm. so I can learn a little bit more about what it means to be white in this society as much as what it means to be black or of color or 
uh, or, or um, yeah, that's, you know, basically a black and, you know, white or of color. Um, yeah. yeah. So, so anyway, that's my thought. Well, <laughs> this is a part of the reason why I wanted to talk to you because you have some very deep and very instructive thoughts. I mean, it's clear from your writing, you know, mm-hmm. uh, I was looking at that chapter, High Yellow. You know, oh, yes. You know, you have some very instructive stuff in there. And, yeah. you know, one of the things I wanted to ask you about, and speaking of that, um, is to to trace, to tell us where your bloodline began, um, mm-hmm. to your knowledge, and uh, where it stands right now. Mm-hmm. So to my knowledge, my eldest uh, female ancestor uh, Annie Millam, uh, Annie Sophia Millam, who married a Stafford, was 14 years old. Uh, she was born, I can go back to my book, and uh, 1824, I believe, was the date when she was born. Um, she was born in what was on the cusp of Virginia and West Virginia. And when the there was a one of the wars when the lines were erased, so they are not sure uh, they the records are not sure don't show me if she was born on the virginia or west virginia side but i have traced the millum name uh to um so the millum name supposedly is one of the uh, uh descendant names of the pocahontas family i don't um write about that in my book because i want to make sure i want to clarify that history yeah um when i found that i thought okay this is interesting um, that would mean because the Pocahontas family, uh, uh, Pocahontas's family. Uh, oh, I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to say that because I want to make sure I'm going to look it up real quick in terms of her tribe. But um, that's interesting. So that's on my uh, my great 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 grandmother's side. 1824 is when she was born. She married Jeremiah Stafford. Jeremiah Stafford is my go back to mom, grandpa, Jason. Fourth great, uh, yeah. So third third great grandfather, uh, Jeremiah Stafford was born early 1800s in North Carolina, uh, in the Halifax uh, Halifax uh, Hertford area of North Carolina, and his people were, or rather, his people were listed as um, as Cherokee. But the land that when I went to Hertford. Uh, that area is known as um, the Meharan land. So mm-hmm. I'm, again, I need to clarify that as well. But when I trace my manuals back, so my mom's mom's mother is a manual, a manual by marriage. So when I trace back, so we go matrilineal. Uh, matrilineal is mom's 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 mom mom's mom, uh, but for um, the the matrilineal side, I've only traced them back seven generations, and I haven't found the nation of my uh, that seventh generation ancestor. I have a few different questions about a few different things I want to ask you. Do you think the census process should be changed, and can it successfully be done? Yes, that is a a great question. Uh, I I'm a um, an administrator as well. I am someone who I'm not just creative. I've got that critical brain. I would have to look at uh, what the census looks like now and what they are categorizing and counting now. 
Uh, I am happy that the census, I believe it was uh, last year, not last year, two years ago, allowed for people to check more than one race, um, which opened up so much uh, for uh, if this U.S. census is used by businesses and uh, government officials to uh, allocate funds and monies to certain places, hopefully that will help all people of color because we're claiming our mixed raciality. So uh, do I think the U.S. census should change? I think it should change if it is not uh, allotting for uh, the communities that need the monies that I just talked about. If the communities are, if there's some gentrification lines, gentrification going on in those communities and we want to maintain the history and heritage of the Latina, Latina, or the black, or um, make sure that no American Indians get kicked off their reservations or take, have their land rights taken. If the U.S. Census can do something about that, yes, it should be changed. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the U.S. Census, well, if anyone wants to actually do the history of what, why they started counting in 1790 is when the U.S. Census began, and they started counting first people's animals and uh, the land allotment, and then of course property, which became people of you know black Africans who who came to this country who were enslaved, yeah. uh, and even uh, if who how many people you had in your home. So it became it became this. Um, it was supposedly about counting what you had. It became a political uh, tool, <laughs> it, and it became a political tool to erase certain communities. Exactly. There are years, uh, twenty years, where American Indians or Indians became other. So it's like, wait a minute, how I'm I'm Tuscarora or I'm I'm a Cree, I'm Seminole. How is it on a U.S. document that uh uh, uh is the um, uh, the tool of this country to to count categorize? How is it that an, Amer- an Indian becomes other? That is because once you become other, you don't have a tribe, you don't have a race, you don't have an ethnicity. In fact, you don't even exist. You're no just I- other. No identity, and that's not right. No that's identity. Wrong. Yeah. Right. You know the 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 conversation about identity and standing up for identities really got loud in 2020 after George Floyd's death. And, you know, there was there were other unfortunate um, circumstances involving other people. The uh, Ahmaud Arbery situation, there was yeah, um, just terrible. Just terrible. Um, I mean, people and, and it wasn't just black folks. It was, you know, there was the, the backlash against uh, Asian and Pacific Islander brothers and sisters in this country. People of all races, you know, were mm-hmm. essentially under fire. For a good while, a lot of it had to do with what people have coined as white pri- white privilege, and you know. So we addressed it, but we recognize, as you pointed out, there are some people in all races that are asking these questions and are engaging in these practices designed to suppress people's racial pride. Even you know, African Americans. I've heard, as you mentioned. You know, hey, you know, you're black still. I mean, yeah. you know, people, uh, Native Americans have, have done the same thing. Latinos have done the same thing. Asian Pacific Islanders. So that is a problem that needs to be addressed. Pivoting for a moment to another topic. Backlash is something I'm hearing a lot about right now. People who have this privilege are getting tired of being challenged on that privilege. 
mm-hmm. and saying, okay, we've had enough. We, we've, we've read and we've studied and we've listened and we've, you know, tried to change and improve, but we're tired of hearing about it now. So stop talking about it. What do you say about that? I mean, you've talked a little bit about earlier about people trying to shut us up, but mm-hmm. I mean, this backlash piece, um, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. it's here. We knew it was coming, but it just there just wasn't any idea when it was coming exactly. But we, we it seems to be gaining gaining steam now. Have you seen any evidence of that? <laughs> so I have um, I think it's maybe it started maybe five or six, maybe seven years ago. I just started addressing backlash immediately. For example, if, uh, if some moment of injustice occurred, uh, then, um, Trump gaining presidency or that totally social justice issue right there. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then the people who elected him, the predominantly white women who elected him. And I'm like, who are you people? How is it that you are electing someone who's a misogynist, a racist, uh, you know, a classist, you know, sexist, uh, how is it that those kinds of communities still maintain their, the hierarchical? Uh, I, actually, I should say not just the hierarchical or the superiority complex, but how is it that you can um, function in this society and not care about the other kinds of things that are happening? Happening. I definitely go back to the sense of fear, but in terms of the backlash. I do believe that there are, I I really hate to say this part, that there are certain communities, uh, whether rich or, or, uh, Aryan race, poor communities, or, uh, you know, uh, you know, white superiority groups. There are some people who, for some reason will, uh, always contend with, uh, whether or not, um, uh, we people of color deserve equality. Uh, I do believe upbringing. I do believe indoctrination. I do believe, um, a fear. I do believe, uh, that education plays a part in all of these, of these things. And I, and this is where as an educator myself, I go back to, our educational system across the country and what the department of education, uh, allows to be taught in our classrooms from kindergarten up to 12th grade. And if, if Texas, a state like Texas can on their books say, uh, enslavement of African peoples was a migration, (laughs) such an egregious, a comment, but if they could, if they are allowed to mis misrepresent the degradation and murder and rape of of an entire what um, five hundred years <laughs> of people, I'm, and I'm sorry, I'm laughing. It's just, it's like ludicrous. No, I get it. That's that, that something <laughs> like that could be allowed. That's that journalistic tension. I get it. <laughs> Her name is Shonda Buchanan. She's the daughter of Mixed Bloods, a USC Los Angeles Institute for the Humanities Fellow and a Department of Cultural Affairs, City of Los Angeles Master Arts Fellow. She's the author of five books, including the award-winning memoir, Black Indian, which we've been talking about. And there's much more to talk about. And we're going to do that on our next episode. A preview coming up after this special reflection. Thank you.
You're listening to Colors. My name is Debbie Ratliff. I am of Irish, Scottish, and Puerto Rican descent. I was born in Puerto Rico, raised in Maryland, and live in Virginia. When when I think about this, and I've said this a lot to, to friends and, and you know anyone who will listen to me, um, it's it's like we're all kind of reading from the same script, both people who are in favor of, of you know changing names and and refocusing who we honor in this country and those who oppose it. Um, the opposition we faced from our neighbors in um, in Falls Church is the same opposition that people are facing today and that people faced before us. You know, our fight starting that, you know, led by the students starting in 2015 is not the first. Other school names were changed long before we started our fight in 2015 um, and took a lot longer in some cases. Mm -hmm. um, but we, I mean, we were, it, it, it got really hateful. It got really ugly. We're, we're the, you know, kind of ad hominem attacks and wow. personal attacks, attacks uh, to, to children who were, you know, the students who were testifying at school board meetings and afraid to testify. And, um, you know, it, it, it got really ugly. I mean, I received emails from people um, insulting me, you know, wow. and uh, you just don't expect another adult in your community to, to behave with such a degree of disrespect, to not be able to have a rational conversation. And, and that's what I kept trying to do is just, let's just speak rationally. Let's try to listen to each other. Let's try to hear each other. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America. If you have any questions or comments about our show, send us an email. You can reach us at colors at thecolorspodcast.com. That's colors at thecolorspodcast.com. Coming up in our next episode of Colors. We continue with Shonda Buchanan on the subject of backlash. I almost have this feeling that you are not allowed, you're not allowed to backlash. You're not allowed because we have gained this office and then to regroup so that you can undermine us. Or you are not allowed because we have um, progressed in or, or uh, uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma, because we have gained a, a, and created and built a business community out of nothing. You are not allowed to uh, um, to come back with your quote-unquote people and take or murder. You know, and so this is when I say that I have started confronting backlash and uh, comments, or um, you know, people who would say say certain things that are um, uh, detrimental emotionally, physically, spiritually, financially to me. I address it immediately. That's coming up in our next episode of Colors. My name is Kevin Stanfield, I'm a black man, born and raised in Washington, D.C. Julie Pham, Vietnamese, American, born in Vietnam, living in Seattle. My name is Vanessa Cardenas, and I am a first-generation American. My family is originally from Bolivia. I'm J.J. Green, and I'm black, and this is Colors. Before we go, it's always appropriate to say thank you, and there are a lot of thank yous today. First of all, we want to say thank you to Roz Whitaker Heck, who is a prolific suggester, and she's a rainmaker. She has brought many of our guests to us by suggesting, reaching out to them, or simply telling them they should do the show. Thank you, Roz. 
Thanks to Ernie Green, Amara Walker, Dorothy Gilliam, Christine Brennan, Dr. Shelby Steele, Ebony Thomas. Thanks to Hillary Howard, Mike Jakaitis, Lily Kiros, Antonello Favro, Julia Ziegler, Joel Oxley. Thanks to Ellie Rowe, Elena Fortney, all Native Americans everywhere. And thanks for the music to Jesse Gallagher, Cosmic, and Offshane. And most of all, thank you for listening. You can subscribe to Colors on Apple, Spotify, Podcast DC, Podcast One, or wherever you get your podcasts. Just remember, keep talking to each other. And just as important, keep listening to each other. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America.